from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Today I'm playing a telephone interview with Nwandi Lawson. A native of the San Francisco Bay Area, Nwandi received a degree in broadcast journalism from Howard University. Upon graduating from Howard University, Nwandi began teaching 8th grade social studies, literature, and language arts in the San Francisco Bay Area before accepting a position at CNN in Atlanta in 1992. At CNN, she became associate producer for three primetime news broadcasts. In 1994, she was hired as associate producer for the TBS children's series, Feed Your Mind. For more than a decade, Nwandi has enjoyed working on all sides of many productions, anchoring Georgia Public Broadcasting's political series, Lawmakers, reporting for Georgia Business Report, and Success Track. In 1999, Nwandi started her own production company called Rev Productions. One of her most successful productions was Atlanta Public Schools Today, or just APS Today, which aired on Georgia public broadcasting stations. We share her vision on a very interesting project she aspires to produce. I started the interview by asking Nwandi where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. I actually was born in Portland, Oregon, but I uh, grew up primarily in uh, Santa Clara Valley before it became Silicon Valley uh, at a time when it was uh, still orchards and uh, a lot of uh, difference going on. Uh, high-tech industry actually came about during the time that I was growing up. I got to watch the shift from uh, growing apples to actually having Apple be a major player on the, the computing scene there. So it was, uh, it's, it was a cool place to grow up, I think, uh, very diverse uh, in terms of, a you know, California tends to have quite a few uh, immigrant groups that have come there for many, many years, so there were uh, quite a few people from different uh, areas of Asia, Latin America. Interestingly, though, when I, it wasn't until I actually left that area and went to college in Washington, D.C., which has a very large African-American population, that I realized that we, as African-Americans, were actually very poorly represented in that area, and there were actually some repercussions that came along with that as well as far as how people were actually being treated. And it's interesting being in the situation that I really didn't recognize it at the time. Interesting. What was spiritual life like growing up? Well, I am the granddaughter of a Presbyterian minister. My grandfather and grandmother actually served in uh, East Africa and, and other places around the globe. And so certainly had an influence there. I, I actually attended seminary myself after college. But my parents themselves were not particularly uh, religious, if you will. Certainly an openness for a variety of of spiritual practices, but not a specific religious denomination that uh, we followed in my home. Um, My mother has subsequently become a Baha'i, but uh, growing up we we were basically exposed to many different um, religious settings. In fact, as a very young child, I actually thought that I was Jewish because I, I, I was on the Jewish Community Center Soccer League, and I participated in so many events at the synagogue. And one year when I 
wasn't allowed to go to Passover. I was so upset. My mother finally informed me that, you know, in fact, you really are not Jewish. So if you don't go to Passover, it, it's really okay. <laughs> that was kind of a surprise to me. <laughs> That's cute. What were your interests growing up? Sounds like sports was one of them. Well, yeah, I dabbled in a lot of things. Certainly writing uh, was a great interest of mine. I always uh, you know, participated in a lot of writing contests and uh, just was very interested. I, in fact, in, in high school, I used to do a, a little serial writing project where I produced about a chapter a, a day and, and uh, circulated it in a variety of classes, which was amusing to my classmates, but not always to my professors or teachers who <laughs> had interest in teaching other things than, than just having me passing around chapters of a book. So it was like a novel or something? Yeah, you know, I took a stab at, at different subjects and whatnot, and, uh, and, and yeah, produced, produced about a chapter a day to, to circulate. And so where did you go to college after high school? Uh, I left uh, Santa Clara Valley. I was 17, and I went to Washington, D.C., which is an absolute night and day experience. I went to Howard University, which, again, an absolute night and day experience, uh, historically black college, about 98% African-American students. I had come from a high school which had six African-American students out of 1,200 students. So it was uh, it was quite revolutionary, and I'm, I'm very glad that I actually had that experience because more so than probably anything else, it was very uh, shaping for me as far as view, my vision of the world and, and uh, getting a view of uh, what I thought was, uh, as a child, I thought was a pretty broad view and came to find that it was, it was relatively narrow. You know, Santa Clara Valley... Certainly, and the whole of California certainly has diversity, but a lot of the separation is based on economics. And so what I frankly hadn't taken into consideration as a, as a young person was that part of the privilege of being able to have a, a good life and, and, and be a person of color where we lived had to do with your economic status. So if you had a good job, then you lived well. But if you lived in East Palo Alto, where I eventually went back after college and, and taught in that area, you know, there was a, certainly a proliferation of African-American and Latino and Pacific Islanders who had less economic means and therefore were living a far different life than I had lived growing up. And why did you pick Howard University? Great scholarship offer. <laughs> uh, it was really the only HBCU, historically black college or university, that I applied to. And I was going to go either to USC or Syracuse. I studied journalism, and those were two very good schools. Um, and they offered... You know, some financial aid, but I received uh, an offer from Howard that was much better, and so I went. So you studied journalism at Howard University? I sure did, yes. I did uh, broadcast journalism and uh, got a BA in that. I, I spent a lot of time uh, actually dabbling in both print and broadcast, which is kind of interesting because it was infuriating to some of my professors who kept saying you have to select one or the other, but I had discovered that you could do paid internships at television stations during the school year, and you could do paid internships at newspapers during the summer. <laughs> and so I was able to not only hone my craft, but support myself by doing both. So what did you do after you graduated from Howard University? That summer, I actually went to, uh, to Kenya to spend time with my grandparents, and then I returned to the Bay Area where I taught uh, eighth grade in East Palo Alto for one year. Uh, taught literature, language, arts, and social studies, and then I was hired by CNN. I had actually applied uh, to a number of broadcast uh, organizations uh, when I graduated, but it was during the last Great Recession, and so there were a lot of hiring freezes. And at the end of the school year, which was quite wonderful because I had actually come into the, the East Palo Alto school system 
as a substitute teacher, but I never left my classroom. I was given a classroom, and I, I remained with the class all year. Um, but at the end of that school year, CNN had lifted its hiring freeze, and so I was hired and moved to Atlanta. So what was your responsibility at CNN? Well, I came into the entry-level program they had there called Video Journalist, and so I did uh, ran camera and operated teleprompter and all sorts of uh, entry-level tasks. And then I uh, eventually, by the time I left and went to Turner Entertainment, I was an associate producer for some primetime news broadcasts. Which uh, primetime newscasts were those? World News, Inside Politics. Oh, gosh. So long ago now. They don't even have those programs anymore. So uh, the, names, okay. the names change, but essentially domestic news. Well, I moved to Turner Entertainment, same, yeah. same parent company, but... I did children's programming. I was actually walking through the CNN newsroom one day when someone said Turner Entertainment was looking for a producer who was also a teacher for a children's series called Feed Your Mind. And so obviously I had come to CNN as a, uh, as from teaching. So it made sense. I went over and interviewed and became an associate producer of children's series Feed Your Mind. This is in the years when uh, Turner Broadcasting and other Stations were under the impression that the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, was going to uh, require some measure of educational programming. And so for several years, we had a wonderful time uh, teaching kids about math and science by traveling around the world and, and uh, using some really cool techniques to, uh, to help them learn those things. What about the children's programming attracted you from the path you were going, which was journalism? Well, you know, certainly I'd been an eighth grade teacher, so that was very helpful. Um, I always had an interest in, in education, certainly have many, many relatives who are in education. I didn't really feel that uh, it was any kind of a divergence. It was simply just using media in a different way. I had, you know, previously reported for several newspapers. To me, uh, it, it's all the same, which is kind of why I was able to do broadcast and print, because frankly, what I say to everyone is I'm actually a storyteller. So whether I'm using a, a podcast or whether I'm using a radio broadcast or a television show or a newspaper, it doesn't really matter. I'm just I'm telling stories. And so in this case, we were telling stories through the eyes of young people. We had hosts who ranged in age from 8 to 14. And uh, we had a lot of fun taking them around and, and helping them to teach their peers about some important subjects. And you mentioned techniques that you demonstrated around the world. Could you share with us one of those techniques? Well, I mean, really fun stuff. I mean, you know, going to Kenya and jumping with some of the Maasai warriors, the Moroni, in order to measure force and and, and lift and teach those, those principles. We were uh, in the Bahamas diving with sharks and learning a lot about the biology of, uh, of that. So rather than, you know, getting on and simply presenting, you know, now we're going to talk about botany, we would prefer to take uh, young people, and, and we had the resources to do that, take them to a rainforest in Costa Rica and talk about ecology. And so that was a really cool technique and got, got some awards and, and uh, certainly had a national presence for several years. So mm -hmm. how long were you at Turner Entertainment? Uh, I did Feed Your Mind for two years. And then, of course, as, as, as luck would have it, I was walking down the hall one day when one of the directors from the program I worked on told me he was going to be leaving to direct another program at Georgia Public Broadcasting. And he said, I think you should interview for the producer position because it's a Japanese language show, and I know you speak French. <laughs> and he walked off. So I don't know what those two things had to do with each other, but I did eventually become the uh, coordinating producer of a Japanese language series called Irashai. 
So did you learn Japanese? I did. I did. I had wonderful interactions for several years that we produced that show and had a great Japanese team that worked with us. We handled the production portion of it, but they certainly taught me a lot. And how long were you associated with that program? We produced for two years. The program is still distributed. Schools use it as a you know a means to teach when they don't actually have a Japanese language teacher in their school. But yeah, we actually were in production for two years. What did you do after that? Well, I founded my company, Rev Productions, and I have for since 1999. I've produced primarily public broadcasting series, some other you know other projects as well, but primarily documentary political series, and uh, educational programming. And which ones of those are you most proud of? Mm, that's a good question. I honestly um, and it's so excited just about everything that I work on, but you know, I spent several years, gosh, about eight years actually, producing a program called APS Today, which is Atlanta Public Schools Today. And that was fun, obviously coming full circle again for my interest in education and getting to spend a lot of time um, regularly in schools telling stories that people don't normally see on a newscast, stories about young people who are doing some extraordinary things and certainly have had so much impact on, on, on the world around them. So that was that was great fun. Now, now the downside of that is that some of your, your listeners may be aware that Atlanta Public Schools is now under a lot of investigation because apparently some of the uh, testing and, and, and means that they were using to report their progress are, are under investigation now. So that was a little challenging as uh, working in, in, in that environment as well and, and, and gradually becoming aware of the fact that we really couldn't do that kind of production that we were trying to do within that setting because it was kind of it was getting closed off as some of the bureaucracy was trying to protect itself. Does Reef Productions produce a wide range of different kinds of programming? Yeah, I mean, you know, some of the series that I've worked on, we've done for so many years, I produced a program called Lawmakers for, gosh, over a decade, I guess, for Georgia Public Broadcasting, which was coverage of the Georgia State Legislature which um, is, is kind of interesting because some people may know that uh, within the Baha'i faith, we don't belong to political parties. And so a lot of people would ask me about that, and they'd say, well, you know, is that in any way uh, causing you some conflict that you're covering uh, you know, the state legislature and, and, and government in this way? And I honestly never thought that it was. I thought that I actually was the best person for the job because I did not have any feelings one way or another along party lines. I did cover it politics the same way that I had covered sports when I was a sports reporter in years past, and that was, I don't root for the team. I do look for good play, though. That's the way in which we would always cover the uh, the issues each night on, on lawmakers. Unfortunately, I have to say over the last 10 years, 20 years, actually, because when I first came to CNN, I was working in their political unit as well. And the first Clinton election was my, my first year working at CNN when, when Clinton was, was elected in 92. And I, I've generally seen the, the caliber of statesmanship just declining over those years. So it wasn't quite as much fun. By the time we decided not to actually produce uh, lawmakers anymore, I, I felt like um, we had done what we could do in that arena and time to move on to something else. And what was that? Well, tons of projects, actually. Right now, I, I'm actually in Boston as I'm wrapping up a project for the Baha'i National Spiritual Assembly. It's actually about the Black Men's Gathering. Uh, the Black Men's Gathering was a 25-year movement which grew out of individual initiative, someone simply looking around and saying, 
you know, I don't see enough black men in, in this space. And although the Baha'i faith espouses the oneness of mankind and is a very inclusive community, looking around, the participation of black men was just simply low. And so organically, beginning with 12 men who met back in the 80s in Greensboro, North Carolina, the movement grew until there were hundreds of men all over the world. In Africa, they had gone to serve in the Caribbean, and they had done something for themselves, which was remarkable, and that was empowering themselves. They had a meeting each year, which would allow them a chance to have kind of an emotional and prayerful time to regenerate themselves. And then they moved into really lines of action, studying what the Baha'i faith could teach them about how they could serve their communities. And then moving along very successfully, as I mentioned, you know, hundreds of men now doing this, after 25 years, they have ceased to meet in that centralized way. And they are now serving in various and individual ways and in smaller groups and places around the country. And so for the last six months or so, I've been going and meeting with the members of the Black Men's Gathering and learning more about what that process meant for them. And uh, we will be uh, producing a documentary that will, that will kind of showcase that. And when do you think the documentary will be out? Well, there will be a 15-minute preview that will be shown at the Baha'i National Convention in April in Chicago, the Wilmette area. And then after that, we don't have a, a solid production schedule as for when the longer form will be finished, but sometime after that. Now, Nawandi, how is it that you became a Baha'i? I mean, that's so interesting because, like so many people, I guess you could probably say, well, I always was a Baha'i. I just didn't know that there was any such name for it. As I mentioned, I, I went to seminary after college. My grandfather was a Presbyterian minister, and I was certainly interested in religion and had a wonderful time studying, but I never felt like there was a, any superiority of one religion over another. And so the notion of actually becoming a minister and trying to convince other people that there was only one way to find God... I didn't find particularly appealing. But I did learn about the Baha'i faith, um, albeit briefly when studying world religions, and that was interesting, but I didn't really have any follow-up on that. And so that was back in 1991. 1999, 2000, I was in Cameroon and met Baha'is, and <laughs> we just had a fun time together. Uh, there were two musicians, and they would come by and visit me, and we would talk about just current events of the day. They didn't really speak to me specifically about what the teachings of the Baha'i faith entailed, but every time we talked about anything and I would share my viewpoint, they would always laugh and say, are you sure you're not a Baha'i? And we just had a good time, and they said, you know, when you get back to the U.S., you better find the Baha'is. And luckily, I knew where the Baha'is were, because I had passed the Baha'i Center in, uh, in the Atlanta area for years, and I had said, because I'm a curious person, I must go in there and, and find out what they're doing, and had just never done it. But with the, uh, with the encouragement of my friends from Cameroon, I did and walked in one day in uh, January of 2000 and sat down, got ready to watch what the Baha'is were going to do. And uh, a man walked up to me and said, would you like to do a reading? And in true California fashion, because we are the people that you know invented the Welcome to California, Now Go Home bumper stickers, I looked at him and said, I don't even go here. <laughs> and he said, well, can you read? I could, and so that was really the beginning. <laughs> I uh, actually was doing quite a few great and fun things in that community for some time before I actually enrolled, because no one actually had spoken to me for some time about 
what the process would look like. And obviously, becoming a Baha'i is not a, it's not, there's nothing complex about it, but you do have an enrollment card that you would normally sign. And I actually was in that community teaching children's classes and facilitating devotional gatherings for over a year. <laughs> Someone stopped me one day in the parking lot and said, have you ever actually enrolled in the community? And I said, what is this enrollment? And so in 2001, I actually enrolled in the faith. So what were the circumstances that you ran into these five Cameroonian folks? Well, I, it's kind of interesting. People say, well, what were you doing in Cameroon, especially in 1999, because everyone was scared about Y2K, and they were like, oh, my gosh, you're going to Africa. And I was saying, well, yeah, I mean, that's the best place to be when the computers go down. Nobody uses them where I'm going. So I uh, actually was invited by the woman who braided my hair. So there was nothing particularly glamorous about this. She suggested that uh, I might come over and visit her and her family. I had been to many places in East Africa. As I mentioned, my grandparents lived in Nairobi. I had been to Tanzania and Ethiopia. But I had not been to uh, Cameroon, so I, I packed up my things the winter of 99 and headed over to Cameroon. And it turned out that the woman who had invited me, her uncle was a Baha'i. So Charles Kinge was, uh, was her uncle, and uh, that's how I wound up meeting these Baha'i friends. I want to ask you about your Howard University experience and the awakening that you experienced being there in a majority black college versus your upbringing in California. And how did that then inform how and what you did after university? I will tell you that the biggest impact was for me to see a broad range of African-Americans. I know that, you know, in America, there's a, a certain series of stereotypes that tend to classify African Americans as being less than, less wealthy, less educated, you know, just on and on and on, more t- prone to criminal behavior. But I had never seen any of that growing up. And so, frankly, my impression of African Americans was that they did everything quite right. <laughs> and in fact, if you wanted to make sure that you were going to be quite safe, you would certainly surround yourself by the, uh, with them. Now, I went to Howard, and I discovered that, well, like everyone else in the world, you know, there were people, I had some, some interesting experiences with roommates who didn't wish to pay bills that they were responsible for, and I thought, my goodness, we're all black here, and why would you do this to me, you know? So definitely an opportunity to view the world more broadly. I'm also very happy, though, that I didn't have those early impressions, because when I arrived at Howard, I learned about some things I didn't know before, like discrimination within African-American communities, depending on the actual skin color of a person, whether they are lighter and perceived to be better than those who are darker. I did not know about this growing up, and I'm happy that I didn't. Mm. (laughs) I thought it was a bit ridiculous. And CP time. I had never heard of colored people's time, the notion that black people were late. I actually have a grandfather who is, oh my gosh, he's over the top when it comes to punctuality. And so I was happy that I was 17 before I discovered that some of these stereotypes, which, you know, obviously going around the world, you can certainly see (laughs) that that, that black people have no particular uh, ownership on being late. There's various places that you travel to and people just simply arrive when, when it's more comfortable. I think Americans perhaps are more honed in on, on being on time than maybe even their European counterparts. Yeah, I think that uh, <laughs> the Northern Hemisphere folks tend to be time-oriented and uh, yeah. more so than the Southern Hemisphere. You know Joy DeGreer-Leary? Uh, oh, sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. she has this whole thing about cultures. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's kind it of, is. actually, it it's kind of unusual that your father, who's from Africa, 
would in actuality <laughs> be so focused on functionality because normally that's, that's... funny. You, you know, my grandparents though, who lived in Nairobi, they're actually from South Carolina. <laughs> that's fascinating. I know sometimes within the Baha'i community, we think about pioneering and the fact that people will leave their homes and travel around the world. But, you know, there's, there's a bank of people that have been doing that for other reasons as well. So my, yeah, my grandparents were born in 1922 in South Carolina and went on to uh, retire. The last place that they worked officially was, was in Nairobi. But your parents grew up in Africa? No, my parents actually grew up in California. Nwandi sounds like a very African name. It is. And my yeah. name is Ipo, actually. And so I'll tell you, my, my, my grandfather, who, as I mentioned, I mean, he's, he's, he's a Presbyterian minister, but he is <laughs> really a trailblazer as well. He was very active in the civil rights movement, uh, helped to desegregate the facilities in, in Arizona. Martin Luther King came to their house twice. I, I've just discovered some letters in the King archives that my grandfather sent to Dr. King. And interestingly, my mother, I said, did you get to meet Dr. King? And she said, yes, but only at a conference, because on the days that he came to our house, my father wouldn't let me stay home from school. <laughs> so I thought that was pretty funny. She said, no, it's more important that you go to school than that you stay here to, to meet with Dr. King. But one of the things that happened while my grandfather was a minister in Arizona, he was a minister of Southside Presbyterian, which was in the 50s and continues apparently to this day to be the most diverse Presbyterian congregation in the country. And one of the things that he did was to host exchange students, and he and my grandmother. And initially they had students that came from Japan and students that came from India, and that was wonderful. However, my grandfather learned that the university was actually telling the African students not to live with African Americans using some of the stereotypes I mentioned earlier, they, they're, they're going to be dirty, they're going to steal from you, and so forth. So my grandfather, in 1956, decided to just go to the airport and intercept the African students before they got to the university. And that began uh, many, many years of hosting many, many students from all over the continent of Africa, and eventually to my family beginning in the 60s to visiting, you know, to visit various friends in Africa. So myself, my brother and sister, all of my cousins, everyone has either an African or an Arabic name. And it's the influence of these friends that, uh, that were living in my grandparents' home and that we were visiting in Africa as well. Recently, you spoke at a Martin Luther King commemoration. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me what you spoke about at that, what the theme of your talk was there? Yeah, I was, I was, I was really connecting the vision of Dr. King to where we are today, trying to share with the friends kind of the, the, the vision that the work is not over and that instead of looking at Dr. King and Gandhi and, and others who have fought so hard for equality, that we actually could look to ourselves. And so the title of the talk was I Dream a New World. It was really just tying in the fact that Dr. King, a lot of the things that he really espoused and, and, and a lot of his ministry gets cut off because we tend to only look at him in terms of the March on Washington, and it was a wonderful time. It was coming up on the 50th anniversary this August. Beautiful. However, it was very early in his life as a uh, national public figure, and he went far beyond that. And so some of the things that I shared with the gathering on King Day this year were the fact that Dr. King um, really spoke about the need to have a relationship between science and religion. And he said that science investigates, religion interprets, 
he warned that if we were to have arguments about this, that we really were going to you know, place ourselves in peril. So I was framing that within the context that we've seen today where people are wanting to take portions of textbooks out um, because they think that it flies in the face of some of a religious belief. But just pointing out that you know this Baptist minister actually wanted us to ensure that we had a, uh, a unification between science and religion. Um, we talked about the fact that, that obviously he really was a supporter of universal education. He himself, you know, went to college at, at age 15 at Morehouse College, so he was a really good scholar, and he wanted to make sure that we uh, afforded education to people of all socioeconomic levels, because he said it's very, very dangerous to have people who are ignorant in your population. It, it really is what breeds racism. Uh, and then I just I shared a few excerpts from some speeches that he gave about the Vietnam War, because he, of course, really pulled for peace and said that so many of the resources that were being used to fight this very long war were not allowing us to fight a war on poverty in the United States. And he was very concerned about the number of young people who were um, either languishing in ghettos or were trying to alleviate their suffering by becoming soldiers and then were going off to Vietnam to die. So those were just a few of the things that I shared, and I, and I wanted to share those because I think we often kind of stereotype Dr. King. We make him into kind of a one-dimensional figure, and he really represented so much. And frankly, his assassination you know, stems largely from the fact that he was so multifaceted. The fact that he was involved in the anti-war movement and in the labor movement is really what made the, the CIA and, and other government agencies, and as well as individuals in the society, really fearful of what he was doing. Nawandi, what projects do you see you would like to do that you haven't done yet? Mm. You know, people have asked me that for years, and for the longest time, I didn't really have an answer because I was like, I mean, I'm having so much fun. I get to do children's videos. I've, I've done news. I've worked with some great celebrities. Oh, this is wonderful. But a few years ago, I found a story that I really do want to tell, and it, and it keeps getting better as the more and more that I, I research it. My family, as I mentioned, is from California, but the Lawsons actually were from Arkansas until the 1920s when everyone pretty much moved, began moving to the Bay Area. And in fact, Pittsburgh, California, if you look at the phone book, there's, I don't know, like a quarter of it is Lawsons, and they are, in fact, all my relatives. <laughs> they all came out together, and they, and they pretty much all lived in, in, in one area. And I never really knew how or why that happened. I assumed, you know, you have the, the depression comes on, and you want to get better jobs and whatnot. But I was reading a book a few years ago called On the Laps of God, and it chronicles the racial violence in this country in 1919, the bloody summer of 1919. And, you know, I was reading it with, with, with interest that I have in history and, 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 and with horror because it was documenting some just really tragic things that took place throughout the country. A lot of times we like to place all of these things in the South, but frankly, 1919 these were going on throughout the country, and there was lots of uh, violence against African Americans. But I came across Arkansas, in particular the area that my family came from, which is Magnolia, the, the, the Hope area, which is also where, where Bill, Bill Clinton's family is from as well. And I came across a massacre that took place. The fact that out of this, when, when a group of African Americans were trying to organize themselves to receive fair wages for the cotton that they were farming as sharecroppers, a number of whites in the town, including police officers, fired on them in the church and killed a number of people. But the thing that really started the massacre is that many, several African Americans from inside the church fired back, and they killed several of the whites. 
And this started a long rampage of killing that was just horrific. And it turned out that actually was the area that my family was from. And so I took an interest in this, not only because, wow, it began to give me some answers as to why everybody left, but it also, out of that, 12 black men were put on death row. They didn't wind up getting the death penalty. And the reason why was because of an attorney named Scipio Africanus Jones, who was actually born in slavery, did not begin his formal education until he was 27 years old, and went on to become a phenomenal attorney, although the University of Arkansas would not seat him uh, on the bar officially, he studied a, a number of white attorneys and became so well-respected that he had a, a thriving practice at the time that he took on the case of these 12 black men. And he took that case all the way to the Supreme Court. And although he was not actually able to present it himself before the court, his briefs are what saved their lives and also set a precedent for the treatment of prisoners that actually stood in the U.S. all the way until the Bush administration and Guantanamo Bay shifted that treatment of prisoners. So it was an amazing story already. I was I was I was intrigued. I said, Oh my goodness, I have to tell this story. I mean of this of, of this amazing attorney. Um, there's another piece to it and that is that the reason he was able to get evidence that he needed was that uh, one of the white officers who actually fired on the African Americans in the church eventually decides to have a change of heart. And he actually presents all of the evidence that is necessary to get these men off of death row. And of course in doing that, he ruins his entire life. He has to leave the town. The NAACP raises about $1,200 to get him to Memphis. He eventually goes, I believe, to Chicago for a time, but he never gets to see his family again. He loses his wife and his children, but he does such a noble thing that saves the lives of these of these men. And the other aspect that has become even a little more intriguing is that there's actually a high angle to this as well, and that is the Chicago Defender. Robert Abbott, who was a Baha'i, ran that black newspaper in Chicago and sent Ida B. Wells Barnett, champion journalist, down to interview those men. And she gets into the jail uh, without any problem. The men, the, the guards there can't think that this you know, older African-American woman is anything but a, a visitor. And, 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 they, and so in she goes and she interviews them for six hours and produces a text that uh, Abbott eventually distributes through the Chicago Defender, and that, of course, changes public opinion as well, and it's helpful in getting those guys off of death row. So that is a story that I am uh, I'm researching and, and hoping to tell to a, to a broader audience in the not-so-distant future. What an amazing story. It is. I like telling stories because everyone's story is so important. I um, often say that the, the series that I admire most that came out during my lifetime is biography. And although biography only deals with people who have some sort of celebrity status, frankly, by going and speaking to just anyone that you might happen to meet on the street, you can come up with a, with a fantastic story. And they're also very important. So thank you very much for what you're doing to, to share people's stories. No problem. And uh, Nawandi, thank you for sharing your life story and what you're doing. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Happy to do it. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Nawandi Lawson, a multimedia producer with her own production company called Rev Productions. You can find her production website at revproductions.net. That's R-E-V-E productions.net. You can find this interview and other interviews at www.abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, 
you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, where you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. I'm ashamed of mankind But I walk a thin line So I slip If something's in the way Yeah, I'm known to trip It's more than I can take All eyes on me And it's more than I can fake But at the end of the day Man, all that I can say is My prayers to the most great When I'm down for the count In it too deep When I live day to day Start to lose sleep When I don't go to class When I don't call fam back How long can I do this? How long will I last? I don't know, God, I don't know If I am even worthy of your grace anymore I'm waiting for a sign But everything is the sign In reality, the world is already mine I feel it in my veins, the fire When I cry out his name Oh my God, make my prayer a fire To burn away all my veils Make of my prayer a fire, a fire Kindle in my veins a fire, a fire My God, my adored one my king, my desire uh, I know that God gave each a purpose But we all gotta search way beneath the surface To find it, like trying to unearth a diamond That always appears with the most perfect timing So I start reading to find meaning And I see there is still something I am not seeing In between the lines, in my spirit, in the music In the very air that I'm breathing It's the reason I feel forced to write I recognize it inside me, that source of light Showing me that there is so much more to life Arming me with the fire because I got wars to fight I think about the breakers of the dawn And how they stood firm when the guns were drawn On the front lines, far from pawns Kings in their own right They're the ones who I call upon Whenever I lose faith I read the story of my name and realize it's never too late to believe And so shall my powers be I believed and he made a man out of me I feel it in my veins, the fire When I cry out his name Oh my God, make my prayer a fire To burn away all my veils Make of my prayer a fire, a fire Kindle in my veins, a fire, a fire My God, my adored one, my king my desire. Now when the swords flash, go forward. Uh, when the shafts fly, press on. Yeah. Now when the swords flash, go forward. Uh-huh. When the shafts fly, press on. Press on. When the swords flash, go forward. Go forward. When the shafts fly, press on. Press on. When the swords flash, go forward. Go forward. When the shafts fly, press on. Press on. Go east of the dream 
Anywhere with two wings, we can. 
If we're not famous, think that no one will blame us. Letting injustice go on as it does, but the starving don't care about the price of your haircut. Any true kindness will do, because Bono can't change the world anymore. Voices and hands do more than any commands could Reviving the spirits of all who surround you And Bono can't change the world Any more than you two can Bring us Carl and Pearls Good woman and your love Seems to be bonded together by love. So if your little union should seem rather puny, understand that it's right at the heart of creation. Bono can't change the world anymore. On services, the only ticket to peace. It makes the gravest of worries seem the briefest of flurries, sure to be carried away on the breezes. And Bono can't change the world anymore. Remember that Bono can't change the world anymore than you two can. Bring us Carl Pearls, good woman, and your loving man. My If they're not holding up the light My arms are useless If they're not holding up the light My arms are useless 
If they're not holding up the light Oh my Lord, oh my Lord What shall I be? My legs are useless When they're not walking on thy path My legs are useless When they're not walking on thy path When they don't walk the path of peace Oh, my Lord Oh, my Lord What shall I be? My eyes are useless When they can't see the light of God My eyes are blinded When they don't see When they don't see Baha'u'llah Standing within me Strong and mighty With his love Passing 
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.